three things that I've, I've learned for sure in 98% of everything that I've done business-wise is no matter how much you think it's going to cost, it's going to cost more. No matter how long you think it's going to take, it's going to take longer. And no matter what you think this is going to be, it's going to be something different. And rather than digging my heels and saying, like, it has to be this or it's a failure, it's like, no, if I have to keep failing until it feels right, I'm going to do that because that's what the goal is, not to stop. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and on today's episode, Benson Reisman, co-founder of what is now the world's largest prepaid debit card company, Green Dot, offers some timeless truths for life and business. Benson shares with us just how he was able to defy the odds, get past the challenges of his upbringing, and put on a mindset for success. This discussion was empowering and practical, and I do hope you enjoyed as much as I did. So Benson, I work with a lot of students who would love to be entrepreneurs, to be successful like you and build a company, take it public. What led you to entrepreneurship? You know, if you listen to yourself, you are led in different directions. Some people are good with math. Some people are led to work with numbers. Some people are good with science and they create penicillin. Some, and some people just have ideas. And I know throughout the course of time, my mind has tended to roam to, at one time, thought crazy ideas that I try to figure out how do you make them happen. I also have worked in a number of different scenarios and try to pick up the best I could from everybody I worked with. But I always would say like, well, how would I do it? And why would I do that? And gee, would I have done that? And the more I worked with people, the more I began to think, well, you know, these guys are smart, but how do I stack up? And over the course of time, I've come to believe like, well, let's just find out. And it was more of a test to me to say, I think I could do this on my own. And I've always liked to draw outside the lines. That's always been a comfortable setting for me. I've always liked to work in an environment and felt challenged when people say it couldn't be done. And so what, is some, what does a kid do when people keep saying it can't be done? You either choose to not do it or you say like, well, I'll figure it out. And that's kind of led to it. I didn't know it was called entrepreneurialism. I didn't know it, there was a thing called entrepreneurship. But what I knew is that there was more and it was a, a sense of contribution of myself to make something different, bigger, better, changed or whatever. So I've just kind of followed that route. So that's something, do you think you were born with that? We talk about entrepreneurial mindsets, and it sounds a little bit like that's what you're talking about here, that mindset of, I can do this, and why not test myself? And Yeah, I think that's, well, I think that's true. I think people are put in scenarios that they feel comfortable with or not, and I think what a lot of people don't do is really listen to their heart. They, they, they doubt their own instincts. And as a result, rather than moving forward and doing something that they would have hoped, they might run a life of regrets where they say, gee, I wish I could have or would have. And my thought was, well, let's give it a try. Let's, let's give it a try. And so if you're born with it, I think you're put into scenarios, you're put into situations where you have options. And an option is, I'm going to try to figure it out, or wouldn't this be fun to do it different? Or I really like doing it the same way. And as those doors open up, you choose to walk through or not. So for me, I've always liked 
trying something new or trying to fix something or change something or be challenging myself. And geez, hmm, maybe this could be done in a different way. So it sounds like, you know, as you talk about going ahead and trying something without knowing what the outcome's going to be, that you're comfortable with uncertainty and you're comfortable with the fear that goes along with that. And that that's been that's a tough one i think for most people so where do you think that came from and and how do you deal with that and how have you dealt with that well you know i don't know that anybody's born coming out of the womb with exactly prepared to do whatever they're going to do so you learn over the course of time but i think the idea of risk or challenge or putting in a comfortable situation in my experience for me is no different than anything else that i might do in my life if i was going to pick up golf I would swing the clubs and swing the clubs and swing the clubs and I'd hit it into the rough and I'd hit it into the sand trap and I'd do it and I'd keep doing it. And my choice would be like, I don't want to do it anymore or I'm going to figure it out. And I think in, in kind of putting a twist to it, it's, it's for me, I've kind of turned, gained the comfort with the uncertainty because I've been in it so much. So I've been able to build up some so calluses to know like, well, this doesn't feel good. But, you know, I've been here in the past where I didn't know where I'm going or I didn't know how quite I would figure it out. And it's worked out. And the more of those situations you find yourself in, the more you begin to, for me, I can only speak for me, build a confidence kind of in your own sense of I'll figure it out. So when uncertainty comes up, you figure I have no idea what the hell is going to happen. But this is what I'd like to happen. And you know what? I'm going to figure it out. And I've been here before. And I think it brings a, it is a certain calm that you have. It's an, it's, an, it's an exercise not unlike if you kept swinging a bat or played golf or were cooking. You do certain things over and over and over until you gain a comfort and there's a, it begins a positive habit. And the positive habit that I have a sense of comfort with now is wow, there's been a lot of challenging situations in your life. Everything's perspective. To some, it wouldn't be. To me, it was. And uh, somehow, some way, with some help or little help, I figured it out. So what makes this particular situation any different? Why can't I do this? And you come to find that you take on a, a sense of responsibility. You really feel empowered. You feel empowered that, like, sure, I'm going to fail. But that, is it really a failure? Is that going to lead me to something else? Is it going to open up another door? Because the three things that I've, I've learned for sure in 98% of everything that I've done business-wise is no matter how much you think it's going to cost, it's going to cost more. No matter how long you think it's going to take, it's going to take longer. And no matter what you think this is going to be, it's going to be something different. And rather than digging my heels and saying, like, it has to be this or it's a failure, it's like, no, if I have to keep failing until it feels right, I'm going to do that because that's what the goal is, not to stop. And when you kind of get it down to a process in your mind, you kind of say like, hmm, this is uncomfortable. I felt this before, but this is what I've done. You begin to exercise that and you figure it out. You go back to the things you know. You talk to experts. You talk to people. You look in the mirror. You yell at yourself. You talk to yourself. You walk around the house saying, like, Benson, come on. You can figure this out. You call up a friend and you say, what would you do in this instance? You do some homework. All those things come up and you begin to see clarity. And then that gives you a sense of I'm making progress. There's momentum here. And you move forward. 
You know, that it, it makes me think about the concept of resilience and perseverance, which we talk about as part of the entrepreneurial mindset. And I was blessed with a mom that told me if I never made mistakes, I wasn't doing anything. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it used to you know, upset me a little bit because I was a bit of a perfectionist, still can be, which I think can get in the way sometimes of my own, my own path. But that really helped me a lot. And I see in some of my students a lack of willingness to fight through the failures. Were your parents instrumental in this whole process? Did they, like my mom, tell you, you know, you can do this, Benson, you know, you can make this happen? I mean, was, and, and, or was there a teacher or was there somebody else along the way? And how did this all happen for you? Or did you figure it out on your own? And how did that happen? But I, I don't know that my I would have to think through my parents or mother. I mean, I, I think there's been a approach that I've come to understand about failure and resilience to the failure. And I think that's been that I've taken on an attitude that there is no failure. You know, there are things that just don't happen to turn out the way you thought they were. I mean, in my mind, there's, there's two roads. There's one that's failure. Failure is like, I knew I shouldn't have done it. That was a stupid thing to do. I knew coming into it that that wasn't going to work. I knew I shouldn't have done it. I should have listened to my mom and dad and friends and everybody, but I did it anyways. It didn't work out. Shame on me. That was a mistake. I actually knew better. But everything else just didn't turn out the way it thought. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a bad thing because it opens up doors to something else. Something that I thought might have been a failure ended up, I've been blown out of three or four jobs in my life when I was in broadcasting. What a failure. I was a loser. Oh my God, what's going to happen? And then all of a sudden that forced me to go through another door that led me to something else. Had I not been, had that not have happened in my life, then I might still be doing that. And I never would have had a chance to exercise some of the good fortune and skills and things that were in me that I didn't even know. So it almost sounds like to me, life wasn't perfect growing up. You said you lost your father and your mother had some challenges. And This is the up close and personal section. Yes, it is. (laughs) But it sounds like you had had some personal adversity as a child, but that didn't stop you. And so maybe the message with this is that you were you went ahead and put yourself out there mm-hmm. and you know I don't know if there were any pivotal moments that where you made that decision over that you can recall mm-hmm. but you know as I think about talking with students and this fear of failure and you know this need to to always succeed in everything they do and not trying unless they can succeed it sounds like you decided I'm going to try anyway and failure is an option, and I'll live through it, and I'll learn from it. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah. Well, what I did learn from my mother, because she was challenged in so many ways, is survival. I mean, she really had very little in her life. She couldn't read or write. We really didn't have any money growing up. So it's not like any of us were blessed. But I didn't know any better. You know, there's an old saying, to fish know they're in the water. You know, and was I ever unhappy? I, I never thought of myself unhappy. I was just living my life. And every day I woke up and my mother was there and she made me my dinner and I went out and played with my friends and that was it. But in retrospect and looking back, I see how much she did with as little as she had and how much of a difference that made. And that kind of, I think, opened up my eyes as I got older that so much of a person's power, enthusiasm, involvement, energy is in their mind. It's, the, it's what they're creating in their mind. 
It's them flipping a switch and finding some way to make some crazy sense of all this stuff that's going on, this chaos around them. And, and in doing that, that really is empowering because it allows a person to believe that they actually have say over their life. They actually can do things. Now, of course, things are going to happen that weren't planned, both on the good side and the bad side. But it's how you deal with them. It's how you, everybody deals with a similar situation, but how you come back and approach it. What you do with that information. Does it blossom you or does it crumble you? What you do with that kind of starts a habit of how you will embrace things in your future, how you will address things in your future. So I've, I've found that I've actually, I can't say you're comfortable in failure, but why beat yourself up some, over something that there's some things you just can't do anything about? And why not find, use that as energy to figure out what we can do about it? You know, rather than talking about all the things that went wrong, let's take a time out and say, okay, these are the things that didn't turn quite out the way that we thought they would. How do, how do we do it so it doesn't happen again? How do we look in, work, live into our future and not die by our past? And I think if you can find a way to flip that switch, it's extremely empowering. I mean, it's, it's like, that happened. Good for me. I learned that lesson. Now I know not to do that again. Or I will do that again, but there'll be different circumstances when I'll try it. And I found that that really has been key. I mean, when we started our company, Green Dot, my business partner, still CEO, Steve Street, unbelievable genius, and with love in my heart, Darth Vader had a dark side. <laughs> And when something bad would happen or not to our expectation, it was chicken little and the world was going to crumble. Oh, my God, they said no, and I'm going to go bankrupt. <laughs> and that happens. That's a very real feeling that you'll get. And not that there's anything uniquely different about me, but my mind said, like, well, snap out of it. Like, okay, that's what we know that. Now what are we going to do about it? And it allows you to put your feet down on the ground and move forward and with a calm, say, I'm just kind of comfortable in this. We're going to figure this out. We're going to figure this out like the first, like when I learned how to walk. We're going to figure it out like when I learned how to spell. We're going to figure it out like when I learned how to ski. I kept falling and falling. And what happened? Did I say no? No. I saw everybody else swishing up and down the hills. And I go, well, if they can do it, there's got to be something that I can figure out. And if you think in those terms, if you take it out of the terms of failure in a business, and you think about it in terms of other things in your life, other things that you love, you know, maybe you couldn't sing and now you're up there doing karaoke and it's like, wow, I actually have a good voice or whatever that might be. You'll begin to see that the things that you, the mountains that you believed you couldn't climb, actually you can. But it's all so much in your mind and how you do that. Yeah. It's, so it's, I think it does go back to this entrepreneurial mindset. So you brought up Green Dot. Let's, let's talk about your path to building a company that ultimately went public. I know you started here at the University of Tampa. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your career path to get there? Sure. I, can, I guess I'll pick it up upon graduating. Didn't know. In fact, I came to University of Tampa. Grew up in the Boston area, just wanted to get away from home and get independent. Got here, graduated in four years, was full of energy, full of enthusiasm, had this kind of calm confidence of like, I'm going to be somebody. I had no idea what that was. Had no idea what I was going to do. Didn't know anybody. Didn't come from a blue blood family. The university wasn't blessed with a huge network. 
all these things, but I figured, well, I can figure it out. Why not? First job I ended up getting was with Carnation Company in their grocery products line. I had the territory of East Long Meadow Mass down to Stanford, Connecticut, sending the full, selling the full line of Carnation products. To my day, some days it's good, it's almost like a nightmare. Instant breakfast, Carnation instant breakfast, Frisky's Buffet, Contadina tomato sauce, all these products this. were those. But the kicker was I thought I died and went to heaven because they offered me 13.5 and a, my own personal company car. And the company car was a green Dodge Dart with an AM radio and black tires. All right. <laughs> died and went to heaven. Amen. And they said I wasn't going to make it. So we worked through that. But about a year into it, into this management training program, I noticed that I had an unbelievably great training ground really involved, really people that were supportive, but it just wasn't for me. I just wasn't feeling it. And I started thinking about, well, what else would I do? And I had a conversation because I'm a big believer in being upfront and integrity and honesty. And I had a conversation with my manager at the time. And I told him like, hey, Bruce, I don't think this is really for me. What can I do? And he goes, go figure it out and like come back and tell me in like two weeks. And I sat knocking on doors and in the advertising business. And I went to New York. I was living in Connecticut at the time and start making cold calls. And long story short, that went nowhere. And then along the way, I wanted to get into the agency business. Somebody said to me, well, you know, it's going to be hard to get in the agency business because you don't really know anything about the business, but maybe you should try an ancillary field. I said, like what? Well, get into like radio or television or newspapers where you'll learn about the business and then based on that expertise, you'll be hired because you'll have experience. I figured, okay. So this is where the story begins. So the more I learned about radio, because that's what I got into, the more I liked it, and the more I learned about advertising agencies, I want, didn't want to have anything to do with it, which again tells you the best goal and the best motive doesn't turn out the way you want. Getting into radio turned out to be a great career of 20 years in broadcasting, in selling spots, selling air. Talk about an opportunity to be creative. When you're selling air, things that you breathe, it's not tangible. Theater of the mind, that's a great way to exercise your thought on how can I present ideas and what can we do to generate interest. So I think that was a training ground. And by the way, all these things happen. You kind of, you think are one-offs. Little did I know that 25, 30 years later, I'd be selling an idea for my life. So you kind of think like I took this job and it didn't go anywhere. Or, wow, what, what a mistake to take that job. Or how, why did I stay in it so long? And it's not until you have the perspective to look back to say, I get it. These were all pieces along the way that put me in a position to do this now. So fast forward, broadcasting for 20 years, and then along the way met a good friend of mine who ended up being our business partner. And the business, the radio business, was getting homogenized. It was really vanilla. The creativity of it was, being, was a bit lost. And it wasn't fun anymore. It just wasn't entrepreneurial. When was this, Benson? About what time frame? Uh, about 19, well, I, I think the business started to really change about 1988, but I think by the time it happened for me, it was around 1999. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a buddy of mine, and he was telling me about this idea he had. And 45 minutes later, I said, we're going to do it. And he goes, do, what do you mean, do, do what? Well, what are we going to do? I'm saying, we can do this. Now, we had no idea what that was, and it was a great idea. But who knew? But the, but the idea of, hmm, I think there's something to it was enough to create and pique some curiosity. So what was the, the original idea? The original idea was my business partner, Steve Street, was in broadcasting. He programmed radio stations. And the short version is 
got out of radio a little bit, but still wanted to be involved with it. So he went to radio stations asking them to be to consult on the music that they played. And nobody was interested. But some of the radio stations that he talked to targeted the youth market. And back in 1999, 2000, that was a time frame when all the brick and mortars, all the stores were going to close. Right. And Everything was going to be done online. So everybody right was on the that. dot bomb air. Everybody <laughs> was jumping on. We got to make this happen. And these radio stations that Steve was calling on was saying, we're not interested in your services that way. But if you could ever figure a way to get an 11 year old kid to stick a $5 bill through a hard drive, because we want to sell them t-shirts and movie tickets and so on, we'd like to do that. So Steve, much like anybody would do in just kind of having a chat said, well, what happens if I had a card that kids could use to buy online? And everybody went silent. He just brought it up like as a matter of fact. And he started thinking about it. And then as the perfect storm hits, all of a sudden, by coincidence, but not really, I call him up because I checked him with him regularly about two or three days later. And I said, Steve, what's up? He says, I don't know, but I got this really weird reaction. I had this idea about like a credit card for kids. And we talked about it. And what came to my mind on the other side, having no idea of the genesis of it, I said, I remember going into Costco, seeing all these huge shippers of prepaid phone cards. And I'm saying to myself, who the hell is buying all these phone cards? What can, you're just making a phone call. How can you keep, you can't keep them in stock. So one and one equals two. And in the process of a 45 minute phone call, I'm thinking like, wait a minute now, if you can't keep phone cards on the shelf, wow, what would it be like to have a MasterCard or Visa card that somebody could buy off the shelf and they use anywhere to buy anything. And that was what got me involved. Two weeks later, went out to fly out. I was in Detroit. He was in L.A. Flied out to see him. Went to sit in International World Headquarters, which was his bedroom. Because that's what entrepreneurs do. <laughs> you know, exactly. everybody thinks it's all flashy and glamorous. But, you know, when all is said and done, International World Headquarters was his bedroom. And that was a great spot to be until the phone rang and his dog barked. That was a giveaway that we weren't in an international right, operation. Right. <laughs> Those are just some of the little stories that go that are really real that happen. But that led to us seeing, let's do it. You know, let's let's kind of do it. We had no idea at the time there really wasn't a prepaid industry. At the time, there might have been one or two or three gift cards, and there have always been debit cards that you go into a bank and buy a debit card. But there was never a a debit card product that you could go into a retail store and purchase on a J hook off. And that was kind of the genesis of the thought. However, it was to give a product for kids for them to buy a virtual card. So even though that there was a product that you a could physical, purchase off of the shelf. A physical card. A physical card. You could go online and you'd get your number and a kid would use that to buy online. Well, fast forward, it took us about, uh, we were going to be an overnight success because now we're both brilliant. And who's going to say no to Stephen Benson, right? Because we're so smart. Right. A year and a half later, down to maybe a couple bucks left in our bank account, we finally closed our first distribution, which was Rite Aid. And when we got that opportunity to go through a small trial, we found that about 70% of the cards that were being sold were to adults. And the challenge in knowing what you're looking for is always making sure you find it. So our thought was, well, this must be parents buying it for kids, and that's why it's adults. And it wasn't until we didn't buy into our own press releases and say, no, it has to be for kids, that we actually start talking to some of those customers and finding out, oh, no, I just don't have a credit card. Oh, no, I, you know, I want to take my kids to Disney World, but I can't rent a car unless I have a, a credit card. And that opened up the whole world to us to say, 
wait a minute, we've been looking at the tail, but the dog is the unbanked and credit challenged market. And right. that's really when everything blossomed. So going back to what I shared earlier, what a shame that we made that mistake. That was a failure and our business was doomed because we started, we picked the wrong market to go after. And really what it was, was it just opened up this idea of, wow, look at what there is. So you had to pivot, basically. We had to pivot. And we pivoted so many times that it would rock your mind in what the product looked like, in in what the moniker was, in what the logos were, in what the, you know, the company. Here's the diversity. We went from, the first name of the company was WeSellCrap.com. <laughs> Why? Because Steve said to his kids, hey, guys, if you had a product like this, like your own card, what would you do? And his kids say, I don't know. We'd probably go online and buy a lot of crap. And that's what Perfect. started. Perfect. <laughs> All the way to becoming Green Dot Corporation on the New York Stock Exchange. That's an amazing story. I love it. And what's so great about it is it has so many entrepreneurial lessons in it. The first one, we talked about resilience, so you kept going. The second, no matter what you think your business is going to look like, it's prob- when you start, it's probably going to be different. The other thing I love hearing about is that how this opportunity came together. We talk about the, a lot of times about connecting dots, and a lot of times it's connecting dots between who you are you know, your experiences, your life, your work experiences, your education, everything that's come together, who you know, your business partner and the others in the industry, and what you know. You're, you understood certain things about the marketplace. Now, you had to get in and be educated and, mm-hmm. and actually learn along the way, but it's, it's a perfect— Very humbling experience, too. It is a humbling experience, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you really got to— you know, you really have to be able to look in the mirror and say, wow, you actually are gaining weight. You know, wow, you, you, these wrinkles are kind of coming out. And, you know, and I'm not going to keep reading my press releases. Right. I mean, people keep patting me in back saying, good, good, good. But, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, these are also people that, you know, as being the first in is not only a challenge, but it's an unbelievable responsibility that you're not even aware of until after the fact. And the responsibility is you're actually setting the tone for everybody behind you. Right. You know, right. if you take, think about a boat or water skiing, you know, all these people are riding in your wake. You're the lead dog. You're, the, you're, the, you're like going in. You're, you're the one that's going to get hit with a rock on the bow. Right. You're the one that's going to get hit with bad weather first. And everybody watches you. And they have the vantage point of saying like, wow, we like the way they did that, so we're going to do that. But we don't like the way they do that. We see that's a mistake, so we're going to do this. And rather than thinking like, oh, woe is me, or why isn't life fair, or we did it first, why, are you, why do you worry about that? I mean, that's just the way the world works. That's the process of the world. Things happen. People, if you want to win every race, make sure you run with people who are slower. Right, right. But that's not the way it works. It's not going to challenge you, right. No, and it's it's not like- the, way, the way it works is, man, there are people who are fast. Like, should I be running or shouldn't I? I think I should be running. I'm going to work at it, and I'm going to cut a couple of seconds off of my time, and I'm going to I'm going to try to figure what I'm going to wear. Get a haircut. I'm going to shave my body. I'm, whatever it is that you have to do, I'm going to do these things because these are the things it takes to compete at that level. You know, the idea and the dream of watching a movie and thinking like I want to be just like them. It's really enticing, but there is no there is no exception to execution. I mean, the fact that in the morning I can wake up and, or many of my friends say, I have this great million dollar idea. That is 
That's the hook. That's the fuel. That gets you up in the morning to say like, I'm working on something. This is going to be great. How do I tinker it? How do I tweak it? I'm really motivated. But if it ends there, no one will know your name and it will never happen. Right. Do you know how many people at three in the morning turn on the television and watch that little snuggy thing that you zip up with the hood over and they go, that son of a gun, he stole my idea. Well, he stole his idea. This is, a, you know, while you were thinking about it, somebody else did it. And that's what it takes because there's no lock on ideas, but there it, the biggest challenge is the execution and finding partners, being open, being humble enough to, to entertain different thought embracing the risk of this could be wrong, but I'll learn from it. All these things kind of guide you to whatever this is supposed to be. And as I said before, oftentimes it's different than you thought it was going to be. But is, is the objective really to do just this or to make a difference? You know, building a publicly traded company, a company for that end, that exit, is a monumental challenge. Can you talk to us about how that how you saw that process unfold and how that might differ from building a company, a family business, or a company that's going to stay privately owned? Well, when you start your business, and especially if you're two guys that don't have a lot of money, you quickly learn, we better make friends. (laughs) And we better make friends with some people who have money, and we better figure out how to talk to them and understand them and, and do that. And I think over the course of time, we went from being entrepreneurs. We, didn't, we weren't considering ourselves entrepreneurs. We just said, we have this dream and we want to make it happen. We never said, this is what we do. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to make a difference and do something that had never been done. But we realized that we're going to need help. I mean, we don't have the money to do some of this. And we had to start opening up and thinking about who else do we need to get involved in this? And as soon as we start tapping into that, we found that there were people who were willing to help for a price. They were willing to give because they wanted something. And that's okay. That's the way the world works. But we didn't really understand that. We just figured like, well, we would help you. Why wouldn't you help us? <laughs> and right. that's just not the way right. it works, right? So they, we began to understand, oh, wait a minute. So this is how it works. So if we really want to get big and we really want to continue our growth, we're going to need a lot of help. And in order to get help, we're going to have to give up some authority, some control, some power to gain some expertise. And frankly, there's a lot of people who are smarter than us, so why not? And that's when we start entertaining the thought of, do we really have to own this ourselves to make this come what it is? Well, gee, a mark of success would be going public. It would be acceptance by the world that we're actually a really viable business entity. It would also open the, up the door to be able to have people who are vested in us and not just interested in us, but vested in us. We ran across a fair amount of folks when we got to that point who not only provided financial support, but also put all their power in partnership, in alliances, in direction and guidance behind it to ensure that their investment in us would lead to a return for them. It wasn't just like, we're going to give you money and then you better bring it back or else. They were going to now support you. So were you originally funded by some angel investors? Angels, because we prayed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's Private our invest. But we, we, it was, it, you know, we both had an opportunity, not a lot, but we were with private companies at the time in broadcasting that ended up going public. So we got a little kiss on the way out. We had a little bit of money to float with. And then we went through a friends and family round, all the traditional ways that you would know of, friends and family round. 
And those were people who had no idea what we were talking about, but they were just like, wow, you really are into it. Sure, here's some money. That kept us going for a little bit. And then we had to find a way to prove our model so that people whose business it was to invest would build enough confidence. We could build enough confidence in them for them to say like, hmm, you've never done this, but I do believe that you can do it. I mean, I have made, you know, you begin to read your own press releases. So I figured I've started this company. We've taken it public. I've done these other things. I know how to invest. So I started investing in companies. I've proven that I'm a bad investor. <laughs> I've, I've worked really hard and made enough mistakes. Things didn't go my way to know. I can really do this well. That's invest bad. And so the one thing that I've continued to have to work with, I've had to work with, was forgetting the biggest thing, which is it's the management team. It's not the idea. It's the people. It's the people that will make the difference. A great idea with fair people, fair management, will never do as well as an okay idea with exceptional talent. Right. It just, will ne- it just won't happen because of all the things that are required in the course of growth. So going full scale back to how does it relate to us going public and and everything else, we just start thinking about we're going to need help to make this as big as we as, as it can. And we're going to have to start investing in people, smarter people, and picking their brain. Because not only were we a new business, we were actually an entirely new product, an entirely new category. We can't take claim for creating the prepaid category, but we can certainly say that we were one of the more influential companies in creating an entire category of business. And that meant introducing a new vocabulary, introducing a new product. When we, want, when we launched the card, nobody even knew what to call it. In fact, MasterCard and Visa slapped us on the wrist by calling it a prepaid credit card because we weren't issuing credit. Right, right. And, but so what were we? Well, I don't know. Call it, we had to figure even out what to call it. Right. So, and when we were going for distribution, no, there was no category. So who do you talk to in a retail store that's going to carry it? Nobody knew what to do. So we had all these other things to go over. But the good news was nobody ever did it. And the great news about an idea that's never been done is you are as wrong as you are right, and nobody can prove it. Right. So why not believe in yourself? Right. You know what's interesting is I'm listening to you talk. I'm going to ask a real personal question here in a minute. But you prepared yourself for this because we talked about your experience growing up and being observing your mother and learning how to survive and going through several different work experiences that all taught you a lot, but you prepared yourself for for being in this situation of creation because creation is kind of uncomfortable at times if you're not, what's well, definitely uncomfortable if you're not comfortable with some uncertainty and being willing to put your ideas out there. So how old were you when you started Green Dot. How many years of experience? Just just to, uh, for a little reference. Well, I, when I started, I had hair, and now I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say, well, uh, right now I'm 62. I started. We started this, and it's 19. It's 2019, right. and I we started it in 1999. Okay. So I don't know. 40, do 42. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not old, but it's certainly not young. It's not like I'm out of school and I better make this happen today or else my life is right, over. Right, right. But, you know, w- what I would say is, you know, what is to be an entrepreneur? What is entrepreneurship? Like, w- what is to be an entrepreneur? Is it creating a business that goes public? Is it inventing something that saves the world? Is it opening a shoe shine shop 
because that's what you wanted to do? Is it even owning a business? And, you know, what I've come to find out over time is it's more of a spirit. It's, it's a spirit. It's an understanding. It's so I don't open a business, but I'm an entrepreneur. Well, how can that be? Because I'm the guy in this strict conservative company that keeps saying, why don't we do this? Like, how come we don't do this? Let me take on that project. Let me show you. Let, there's ways to exercise your entrepreneurial spirit without even opening your own business. I mean, there are people that you go in and you go like, well, that guy's just out there somewhere. And he's the guy that kind of makes change. He's the guy that bangs the pins in this conservative environment where this is, everybody dresses up and does things in a certain way. But, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit is something that you get a taste of. So I don't know that my thought was ever to open up a business, but those experiences of being the guy that just happened to say, well, why don't we try this? And the answer being, because we don't do it that way, kind of said like, but why don't we do it that way? I kept asking that next question. You know, like when you're young and, you're, and your kid says like, why, mommy, why don't we do this? And you go, because I said so. I mean, that's kind of what you kind of got. Right. But I kept saying, why not? And then I would try things, either intentionally or unintentionally. And I would say like, well, that actually turned out okay. And, you know, the more that I did, the more I began to listen to myself and say, Benson, this is a good idea. I mean, everybody's telling you it isn't. But if you give yourself a chance, you're going to make a couple mistakes. Things aren't going to turn out the way you thought. But, you know, there's something to it. So my thought at that time was, you know what? I'm going to make some mistakes, a lot of mistakes, on their dime. Right. I'm going to work for this company, and they're going to put me in situations that I'm going to try stuff because I think it will work. And I'm going to learn enough stuff that there's going to come a day that I'm going to go back in my memory bank and figure like, hmm, I bet I can try this because when I did it then, it will go here. It wasn't just like one day you start a business and all of a sudden you're an entrepreneur. These are things that evolve over time. These are the, it's your intellectual curiosity. It's your effort to survive. It's your will to prove against yourself that you can run as fast as other people. So I, I think that there's a lot of things that drive that. Everybody has their own way. You'll, I'm sure, talk to... 15 different people that start their business and there'll be some commonality in it, but they'll all have their own spin on it. And it's really, I think that's the answer. The answer is there is no one way. There is no magic solution. You know, everything's a process. But if I, if I tell you, if I give the greatest speech ever and I hand it over to you or vice versa, that doesn't mean I'm going to sound anything like it. it has to be in my own words. Right. It has to be through my own lessons. It has to be with authenticity. authenticity. It has to be authenticity. There has to be integrity. There has to be these kinds of things so that when something doesn't turn out the way you hoped, you're not sitting there saying, I knew I should have done it differently. You want to give it, your, you want to say like, I did it honestly. I did it. This is what I believed. I believed this was going to work and it didn't. You know what? Check that off. I got that out of my system. As opposed to, that didn't turn out the way I thought. Damn it. You know, I should have did what I thought. Yeah. I would rather, you know, I would rather do that. And then you begin to own it. You own it. And it's empowering. It's very, very empowering. And when you become, when you get empowered, you begin to, to believe that you can do anything that you want to do. You know, I've often heard that, that personal growth and development and, and of almost anything requires creating habits and 
rituals. And it almost sounds like to me that somewhere along the way, you created this habit of asking questions and trying to look inside for direction. Mm-hmm. And that that really was a big part of what served you when you mm-hmm. got to to some of the challenges. You know, you make it sound kind of easy when you're talking because it all retrospectively looks nice and you can tie a bow around it. But I'm sure that somewhere along the way, building this company or on this path, that you experienced some pretty extreme down times. Could you talk about the dark, one one of those darkest <laughs> The deepest dark day. <laughs> well, you know, when you're starting a business, it's hard to pick out one day because the reality is you'll you go through peaks and peaks and valleys so often, so quickly, out of nowhere, totally unexpected with something happens or doesn't happen overnight, either in your favor or not. But as I think about maybe a specific moment, there's one that I would say would be right out of a movie. If you saw it in a movie, you go, that just, this is a comedy, right? This is not real. And it's long, but I'll, I'll summarize it as we're in New York, Steve and I are in New York, and we're trying to gain distribution. We have a reloadable prepaid debit card that we didn't even know what we were going to call it. And we're calling on some of the largest companies on the planet Earth. Little Benson and little Steve, who just had a very bad PowerPoint presentation, <laughs> were, going to, were getting in to see people that major companies couldn't get in to see. And the reason was we actually had something that was a solution to their need. We actually had it. Nobody, nobody really be- knew if we could do it or not, but they were interested because there was an issue. How do you monetize the youth? Right. So we're in New York. We had just left the meeting two days before that with a small VC who was going to give us funding. And we were down to our last pennies. We left the meeting feeling great. Kind of a handshake, wink, wink. Okay, we just got to go through the formalities. So we're leaving saying like, man, I was all about to sell my bicycle. What were you going to sell? You know, we were there. And we figured we don't have to do that anymore. So now we're thinking like, great, we got another eight weeks, 10 weeks, two months worth of business. And we're about to go in to see Donna Karen. Right, international yeah. global marketing, wow. and so so why? How could you even do that? Like it's a credit card because they had youth marketing. They were loose, they were right. interested in right. reading, reaching youth, and we called on everybody. And you had anybody. a solution to a problem that the market was experiencing. Yeah. So and we got in by saying like, you know, if you're interested in teens, we have a way to monetize them, and that, that might be easy for your online efforts. And they were like, whoa, I don't know what you're talking about, but that ring that's important to us. Come on in. So we're pulling. We're in New York. Traffic, <coughs> smoke, smog, everything, overcast. And we're just about to get out of the cab. The phone rings, Steve's phone rings. It's the VC guy saying, like, he got turned down, no money. We're out. We're about to go into this meeting. And, you know, it's not like a meeting with Harry Shoe Store. This is like a big meeting we right. got to prepare for. Steve goes white. He goes numb. I thought he was having a heart attack. <laughs> he said, What's going on? He said, Well, I'm going. Hey, they just canceled. They're out. I'm going, oh, my God. So we're walking in. We're bumping into walls, thinking like we're thinking about all this. We walk in, and we have this meeting. Horrendous meeting. Nothing went right because our mind is thinking about our business is over. Right. We have no money. You're sunk. This you got to sell everything. you got to quit. It's like you're done. Sell everything. How are we going to get home? don't have anything. How are we going to get home? Right. How are we going to get it? We, we don't even have the key to our room to get into our hotel. I mean, it was gone. So we're going through this horrible, horrendous, horrendous, horrendous meeting. Left. The only thing we got out of it was I think we made them smile once with a handshake on the way out because they're figuring, like, I'm glad that meeting's over. <laughs> that was the best part of the meeting. And then we're going outside, and we're still, like, comatose. We're like, oh, I don't know. And I'm trying to be like, Steve, it's just one. Let's keep going. He goes, yeah. So you're optimi- optimistic. I'm, and Yeah, I mean, it's just naturally, it's you know, I'm just naturally like, 
we can figure it out. We'll just call on somebody else, okay? There's, I mean, it's, they're not the only venture capital. They're not the only people with money. And his thing was, yeah, but we're running out of time and I have a family and so on and so forth. And so right out of the movie, so we're go down and now we're thinking like, we're down this like, gee, you know, it's 12 blocks to Times Square where our hotel is. It would cost money to buy a taxi. <laughs> Let's walk. <laughs> so we're walking, and like right out of the movies, it starts to pour. Oh, no. And we ha- it starts to pour. We open our umbrella, and of course, it's windy. The umbrella goes inside out. <laughs> we start walking more. We get to a corner, and of course, New York, pouring rain, cab drums by. Slashes you. <laughs> all over, like all over, like we just left a swimming meet. And we're walking drenched like rats. We get to the hotel. The key to our room demagnetized, wouldn't work. That was like one day in no a way. nutshell. We ended up getting together that night. We talked of, to get it out of the system, you know, oh my God, how do you feel? What are we going to do? And then fast forward, got a good night's sleep and just kind of came at it again. And I think it started to work in like, Okay, no money, start from scratch. But it wasn't from scratch because this is where the difference in my mind, why I'm not a big believer in luck. You know, when you call somebody and out of the blue, you get a phone call from a potential investor who says, you know, I'm ready to invest now. And you have no money and it comes out of the blue. Everybody that sees that moment says, you lucky bastard. Right. You, you know what? You're just meant to be. You're, it's un, you know, you're just lucky. You're just really lucky. No one knew that we start romancing that person a year and a half prior. Nobody knew that we would once a month send them an update on what we're doing to try to instill confidence. Right. Nobody knew all the presentations, all the objections, all the things that went into to do that. Nobody knew all that. But in that one moment of time, you look at it and you just go, well, you guys were lucky. And so it all goes back to something. But so fast forward again, what ends up happening is we – Talked it through. We flew back on the plane and we started thinking about, wow, well, who can we, we need money fast. What investors have we continued to keep in touch with that, because it's too late to start from scratch to build your integrity and build your confidence. Who, and we just went on a full binge effort, total focus. Let's target these people and see if we can push a couple over. Just give us a little bit. And we found one. And that was enough to keep us going. And, and then it one was all it took to and get to the one, next step. One domino over and the rest happened. Not that easy. Right. Not that simple. A lot of pain, but it happened. And you know, the, the, the ironic thing is, as you look back in retrospect, you laugh about it. Right. You kind of go like, wow, do you remember how close we came to be on a business? Well, do you, re- do you remember what it was like? Our biggest problem was we bought this furniture on sale from a business going out of business. We were so happy with our first office. And our biggest crisis was when the movers came to move the furniture in, it wouldn't fit through the door. <laughs> it's like, we didn't, we didn't know that. Like, how did that idea come up? Well, we're, wow. I mean, we're cursed. Well, <laughs> that's just what happened. So, but, so what did we do? Steve and I got on the floor in the hallway and brought a screwdriver out and we unscrewed the legs and we moved it in and we figured it out. Well, that wasn't so bad, was it? Creative problem solving all along the way. Wouldn't it be strange to think that our business would fail because we didn't know how to get a table through a door? (laughs) But if you look at it that way, you kind of go, man, boy, we could have had a business if we just could fit that table through the door. (laughs) 
that's not the way it works. So, Vincent, you've had a lot of success in business and you've built, you know, you've built a publicly traded company and you've had some challenges along the way. And one of the things that I really value of, of what you've done with your life is that you continue to give back. You're incredibly philanthropic. You give of your money, you give of your time, you give of your talent. You're generous with entrepreneurs. You said you found out you're not great investor necessarily, but you certainly are investing in... I wasn't planning on being philanthropic to businesses. <laughs> right. But I, I'm, I've been an advocate of that, I guess. I don't know. But you've been, a, you've been a huge supporter of our program at the University of Tampa, and I know of many others. And I just wanted to ask you about that, you know, that whole philosophy of giving back. Has, mm-hmm. that, has that also been a way that you've approached life? And is this just one more stage of that? Or is that something that came more later after you met your success? I've come, I don't know how or when or whatever, but I've come to believe in karma. I'm a big believer in karma, and there's no way to define that or articulate it or write it, read it in a book. But, you know, when you give to the universe with no expectation, it somehow has a way of giving back in anything that you do, love, health, romance, business, whatever. And I find that when, when karma is evaluated by the second hand of a watch as opposed to just the lifespan, there's a difference. If you give with an expectation of getting back, then it's not really philanthropy. It doesn't feel as good because you're setting yourself up for disappointment. But when you give because this is what I do and it makes me feel good and this is the right thing to do, then there is no disappointment. And it really true is a gift to yourself as well as others. And when you, uh, everybody has a story, so this is one portion of mine, but when you grow up not having a lot, hardly anything, and you're happy, you're actually happy because you don't know you don't have a lot. And then you get older and maybe you have more than you ever thought you would. You have a sense of like, well, what is all this stuff anyways? Like, do I really need it? Now, if it's here, of course I'm going to buy a nice car and of course I'm going to buy nice clothes and of course we're going to buy jewelry for my wife. She loves jewelry, by the way. Of course we're going to do these kinds of things because I earned it honestly and why not? That's the, that's the fruits of my labor. But for me, having any resources, I used to be challenged with when I didn't have a lot of money, gee, I'm going shopping today. Here's a pair of black shoes and here's a pair of brown shoes. Which ones do I buy? Well, the biggest benefit of having a little more resources, now I can buy them both. Right. <laughs> that's, that's how money has solved my life. And the interesting part is what I've come to find is the only people who know that money isn't the answer to everything are people who have money. Because people who don't have money say, if I just had money, everything would be great. But the people who have money say like, how come I have money and it's not great? And when you kind of think about that and just let it run around in your mind, you begin to believe, well, how much money do I really need to be happy? And when you come from an environment where had somebody along the way, many faceless people and some people whose names I knew, not in some way, shape, or form contributed to my growth, life, survival, I might not be here. I wouldn't be here. So shouldn't I give that back? I mean... Is it too much to say, like, this worked for me? Why can't I do that for you? And it really has had some meaning and resonance in my life. And I found it rewarding. You know, you go through these phases where it's first, you know, I just want to be me and the age of acquisition. And it's all about me, me, me. I got to get a bigger job and I got to do all that. And then you kind of think like, well, where is this race heading? And then at some a certain point in time, you begin to reflect back and you say like, you know what is is my place on the planet, was it really to create this company or 
was it really that by creating this company, it provided me resources that will allow me to really do a far bigger job than I ever could, which would be to give back. And that's kind of how I've always rolled it around in my mind. And it's just been really great. It's when you see how you can make a difference and get involved. It really doesn't take much. It doesn't take much. So it's really been rewarding for me. I have more gas in the tank. There's still things I want to do. But a huge part of my life now has become philanthropic. Right. That almost brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> I want to thank you for being with us today. Where can our listeners find or connect with you? Well, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of my phone number. You know, I have <laughs> my phone number, my email. I reside in Las Vegas. I actually come to the University of Tampa often to mentor some students and be involved in the way I do. And I don't right now, because a business concept I'm working on isn't up and running, so I don't have a website to go to in that way. But if you, you can do LinkedIn, you can do Facebook. I'm not really big on social media and everything, but for business purposes, I see the value and I'm available through that. And what I tend to do is anybody who contacts me, I tend to reach back to them. I can't say I'm dependable in, within 24 hours because I'm on the road. But if I heard from somebody or somebody reached out to me, I would guarantee I'd get back to them and at least let you know they acknowledge that you called and what can I do for you or how does that work? So I think I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. Is there anything else you want to talk about? What I want to say, because I'm sure many people will listen to this, both students and people who are seasoned. Right. But I know when I'm talking to the students, Everybody is so desperate for this. I, I can't make a mistake. Like, I got to keep doing this. I, I got to come out of the chute just right. I got to, they can't, there's no margin for error. And what I try to share with them is that me at 62 is no different than you in many ways at 18 or 17. The biggest difference, if there is one, is perspective. Because you in the audience are living into your life. Like every day wakes up and you don't know what's ahead. So everything is like, is this it? Is this all it's going to be? But me, having a chance to reflect back, not that I'm old and walking with a cane. No way. But looking back, I have a chance to say, after all these things didn't turn out right, after all these things that I did wrong, I thought, after all these catastrophes that would never allow me to move forward, I wouldn't trade my life with anybody. So then you begin to believe, well, these were intentions. These were like in the grand scheme of... Of, I'm not, I don't know that I, I'm not a big believer in destiny. I think you, you make what you, you become, that your actions actually demand responsibility and those things lead to what will come to be. But as I look back, I think were it not for these mistakes, these mistakes were breadcrumbs that directed me certain ways to know, gee, if I stay all night drinking with my buds, I'm probably going to wake up late. And if I wake up late, I'm going to miss a meeting. And if I miss a meeting, I'm going to get fired. So you know what? Why don't I just come home a little earlier tonight? I mean, you just, you learn these lessons. And the other lesson that I've come to believe for me is don't doubt yourself. When you don't, when you're doing something that you've never done before and everybody tells you not to do it, common thought is everybody told you not to and you did it anyway, shame on you. But you know, nothing is ever wasted. Everything you do, you're going to learn something from. And that something is going to open up a new opportunity. I mean, this isn't just bullshit. <laughs> I mean, this isn't just like make-believe. This is real, but you got to believe it in your head. You have to know that 
I'm going to try this. And if it doesn't work, it's about the learning that I get from it that will lead me to what this is supposed to be. It's not about this. Because if I hit a home run when I'm 21, 32, what do I do afterwards? You know, I talk to my kids all the time and they, we got in this discussion about, you know, gee, dad, you used to mow your own lawn and you used to clean your own pool and you used to do all these kinds of things. And now you're like, well, you're some big shot that you hire all these people to do everything. And I came to find out that, you know, as life goes on, things change. It used to be I had no money and all the time in the world. And now I have a fair amount of money, but no time. My currency has gone from money to time. And I'm just more aware of it. And part of what's helped me do that is all these learning experiences in my past. All the things that didn't go quite right that give me the sense that when I share with people, I don't want to talk to them about this is how I made something happen. I like to talk to them about this is something I did that didn't turn out right. Because it's not about that that didn't work. It's about, but this is what direction it put me in. And that's how I got here. Right. It's about, that's why the old adage, it's about the journey. It really is. It's not one moment in time. You know, a person's life is a resume of their life, not of a moment. And one final thing that I always thought of, you know, I always have had crazy ideas. And there's a very fine line between genius and being like, you have no clue. <laughs> right. And in believing in yourself, it comes down to this. I'm the same, in my mind, I'm the same Benson that I was when I was coming up with crazy ideas that nobody ever listened to. Now when I say something, people say, oh, wow, that's really good. Why? Because one of the ideas that I had came to be, and that gave me credibility. And the only difference is the confidence that that credibility gives me. And the only way I got that confidence was by doing things that felt uncomfortable. And that's how life's a circle. That's how that all kind of comes together. And if you can find a way to wrap your mind around it, I think you got something there. You got a pretty good shot at some success, however you define that. <laughs>